Welcome to Public Intellectual. If you are a fan of this podcast or nostalgic for Bookslet for some reason, you can support Public Intellectual through Patreon and get access to the blog and to bonus episodes where I talk to writers, critics, and friends about books. This week's bonus episode is with critic and editor B.D. McClay, also known as the guest of our Hating Books episode. We talk about bad science fiction, good guilt novels, and whether I am accidentally going to turn into the Nathaniel Hawthorne of the Plains. Go to patreon.com slash public intellectual for more information. So remember when people were desperately trying to find a bright lining to the whole Trump presidency and what people came up with aside from the whole, well, at least we'll get to have a revolution now thing was the art will be good. Amanda Palmer, art critic Jerry Saltz, Joyce Carol Oates and others all declared this in various ways. And although we definitely do not have to take any of those people seriously as thinkers, there was a naive belief among a certain crowd that art was going to save us. We're far enough into the Trump administration that I think we can all agree that the art has been very bad. This situation, though, has brought forward all the old debates about whether or not art or writing should be political, whether politics cheapens and ages work that should be shooting for timeless. These debates aren't really getting us anywhere, as they forget there is no such thing as purity. Refusing to engage with politics is absolutely a political position. So when we're talking about this, I wanted to bring in someone who could do it with some nuance. Natalie Hopkinson's new book, A Mouth is Always Muzzled, looks at the history, politics, and art of Guyana in a time of transition, tracking the interplay of art and politics and economics through the years, and also how Guyana influences and is influenced by its position in the world. It's a very interesting book, and I was so pleased she could come on and speak with me. Can you just walk us through um, the genesis of this project and what made you choose to focus on um, the sort of political and artistic reality of Guyana at the moment? So this project started as a project for the Interactivity Foundation, and they do these public policy projects where we explore a certain topic in depth um, over a period of time through small group discussions. And so the first project I did for them was on the future of the arts and society. And so this project had me going around the country. And I also um, went to Guyana, where my family is from, to do these discussions. And so it started off as being basically like a public policy discussion guide. Um, And then I was approached by the new press to do a book some sort of book adaptation of it. And so, you know, being that I had done some discussions in Guyana and connected with some artists there, um, that ended up being sort of the geographic focus of this book. And part of what you're writing about is how sort of art and politics and also history intersect um, in a culture and in a society. And, you know, it was really interested in all the different perspectives on politics and art. Um, 
about how to be or how not to be political um, as an artist. Um, because I feel like in the conversation, at least in America, that it comes down on these two divides of um, if you have any politics in art, it's automatically propaganda. Um, or if you're not sort of politically engaged, your your art is sort of worthless and toothless. Um, so can you just talk about the sort of different levels of, of political engagement with um, the people that you uh, were profiling? Yeah, so I think when I went into the project, I probably thought along, I mean, the two key characters, uh, Bernadette Persaud and Ruel Johnson, who are both contemporary artists working in Guyana right now, um, they, I'd say, illustrate the divide that you're talking about pretty well. Um, Ruel Johnson is a poet. Uh, he's in his 30s, uh, prize-winning author, but he really believes that art is a tool for communities to change. So to give voice to different people to speak out against oppression, um, but also to develop a whole society. So he sort of like picks up on the Richard Florida creative class idea, the creative class that, you know, these are how we win the economies, the arts and creative sectors. These are the way that we can actually uh, economically develop as a society. Um, whereas Bernadette is in her late sixties at the time, and she is not having any of that, really. Although she, she's not against that, um, but she really believes that art is about individual expression. And when it becomes part of some collective program, it kind of gets ruined. Um, and so she has used art in all of the ways that Ruel has used it, you know, in order to speak out and, and to... Um, uh, you know, in, in some of the ways that he's used it, but she just doesn't like being told to do it that way because she has a strong reaction um, because of her experience, experiences under uh, various socialist regimes in Guyana um, where, you know, they're sort of using the Chinese development model and she just does not believe that there's any, that artists should be part of those sort of economic programs. It's a pure uh, expression. So these are two, two artists who have different, um, they come down on these differently. And then the other people in the book, you know, they're, I guess, various shades in between. Um, yeah, I mean, Prasad says, um, in the book that art changes nothing here. Um, which is interesting in the fact that it's, you know, um, both true and untrue at the same time in, in obvious ways. Um, I mean, you, you talk a little bit about sort of like um, her personal, um, I guess, disillusionment, but um, is there a kind of larger story there of um, artists trying to, um, what am I trying to say? Artists um, positioning themselves as political activists and it being sort of co-opted or ruined by a larger group. Yes. So, right. So, you know, under the social, so, so she's re responding very specifically to, um, you know, with this new, so after independence, um, there was an, the first, I guess, a local leadership um, after independence from Great Britain was a very socialist, um, it actually, again, it's just shades of socialism, right? So it's like people who it's all the workers uh, who are left behind and this, this former British colony. And so they're very pro worker, very um, about uh, politically about equality. Um, and 
so there were all these cultural programs that came about and, and Mashamani was one of the ones that I talk about this, this basically guy in his carnival. Um, and she was responding really to the government people saying, Hey, Bernadette, you're Indian, you're in Indian descent. Why don't you do a little Indian thing for us? You know, why don't you have your little children do a little Indian thing? You know, so she thought it was very contrived, like the multiculturalism was very contrived and it's sort of like art on command and referring to people as comrades. And she was just, she just was, she just had a very strong reaction to that. You know, like she felt like when it, when it gets in that level, it kind of ruins the sort of, um, creative spirit, you know, that, that sort of like art often comes from someplace like very personal, you know, it's very, what, how somebody very uniquely sees the world. And so she just didn't like that, this idea that it had to be part of this. Um, but you're right in that it is part of it. And so I think that I'm probably of the, the school of thought that believes that art cannot be not political, you know, art, all, all art is political, you know, um, and even if trying to not be political, you're still, you're still making a statement in some way. So it's really impossible to sort of divorce it. Um, but you know, I think that with her, I think she has uh, like, there should be some caution around, you know, the government being the sole, um, you know, being the dominant funder of the arts, um, and it being, subject to the different political winds, you know, art is something that really needs to kind of rise above that. And I think that's the, um, the point that she's trying to make. And there's, there's also the kind of, um, powerlessness ultimately of, of the artist and the fact that, um, you can create a work with a specific intention, but your viewer or your reader or whoever is going to take it as, uh, in the way that they choose, right? Like no matter what your intention is, it can be sort of misunderstood or warped. And I was thinking about like your section on Kara Walker um, and how people were sexualizing um, and selfieing uh, this work in a way that was really demeaning. Um, and she was upset by that. Yeah, I had read that she was really upset. And actually, that's what intrigued me about this exhibit. I was like, I need to go see this, you know, because they, they said that people are doing all this inappropriate things um, with the sugar sphinx. And um, just I actually thought that was the best part about it, you know, because it really brought out this ugly misogyny that is never that far below the surface, um, I think. <laughs> uh, but it really made it come out. And it sort of intrigued me and really made me think about, well, where is this coming from? What was the history of sugar? What was women's unique experiences in sugar plantations? And so that's what actually inspired me to send me on this whole path to really look at, like, I am embarrassed to admit this, but before I saw the sugar sphinx, I didn't know that Guyana was a sugar colony. I didn't actually know about the history of sugar in its role in the founding of the West Indies, you know? So it's something that we talk about in my history class. I, I'm teaching a history class at Howard in PhD, this PhD program. And, you know, we sort of talked about how these, a lot of history is not written. There isn't a lot of record, you know, a lot of women's experiences. And so her work really helped fill in that space you know, where there's a lot of silences and a lot of things that we really don't know, but she sort of used her platform to kind of bring all of those things to the plat to the forefront. And, 
you know, I, I thought it was amazing. Um, yeah, because there is something, um, you know, how a country chooses to remember its own history is obviously extremely political and it changes sort of, you know, generation to generation. Um, and it's an active sort of, um, process. And it does seem like America is in this particularly um, elevated state of that at the moment. Um, do you see that happening in Guyana as well? Yeah. So, I mean, historically, well, so since independence, right? So a lot of this book deals, well, it deals with a lot of the history of Guyana, but um, po- politically, I have more details around what happened after independence. And so that was one of the first things that independent Guyana did was establish all these monuments. So they created the Cuffey Monument, which is a, a monument to the slave who he led a rebellion in 1763 um, when the Dutch ruled uh, this part of Guyana and he ruled Berbice for a year. So he took over, he led these slaves in an uprising and he took over the plantation and ruled as governor for a year. So they have a, they put a big um, monument to him. You know, they also did monuments in the same sort of multicultural way. They had monuments to Indian sugar workers that rose up in rebellion in 1948, you know, so they brought, they, they were very careful in thinking about what parts of their history and all the, the very multicultural history of Guyana to bring forward. And it's, it's wild how these monuments are, they're still part of the conversation, you know, um, and so, and it's the same thing in the United States too. You know, we, we're talking about these issues of the Confederate monuments, and we're talking about you know whose history is worthy of being. I just heard on NPR yesterday they had um, they're restoring Robert E. Lee's house on uh, Arlington Cemetery, <laughs> which is pretty stunning. So you you have a traitor, mm-hmm. you know who uh, took up arms against the United States of America and yet you are um, restoring his house, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like it's, it's, this is all part of it. It's like the history is never gone. You know, it's, it's, they live with us. The the ghosts are with us all the time. And so, you know, it's a really talented artist um, like Kara Walker who can, you know, um, bring that conversation to the forefront and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people went to see the sugar Sphinx. And I don't think people really understood how, how deep, you know, and how that gendered history, like how important and how subjugated it it is. I wish that there were like sugar Sphinx should be something that exists around forever. You know, I think that's one of the tragedies is that she's gone. You know, she had to be, she was with the, when the Domino sugar factory was, um, torn down they also tore down the sugar sphinx so but i think that that would be something that would be an amazing monument um permanent monument so we could have a permanent conversation about it yeah it's amazing how um personal and how quickly it gets personal these sort of historical monuments um become in in the sense of you know all these white men decided they had to go protect this shit <laughs> um, um because they were protecting you know not just the history but their sense of self and and so on we put so much of our identity and sense of self in um in our collective history um which you talk a little uh, i mean my favorite sort of figure in, in your book was Bernadette Persaud. Like she just became, um, I was fascinated by sort of everything that, that she was writing. Um, but, um, 
Can you just sort of describe her work a little bit for people who probably aren't very, you know, uh, familiar with her on the level that Kara yeah. Walker, we probably know. <laughs> yeah, she, she's definitely not as well known as uh, Kara Walker. And Bernadette is probably my favorite, too. I just love her so much. I saw her. I went to give the Republic lecture in Guyana during Mashamani a couple of weeks ago. And so I got to go to her house again and see her the latest work that she's working on. And um, she is an extraordinary uh, person. Um, so Bernadette is, you know, as I mentioned before, she's of East Indian descent. So she was uh, her ancestors traveled from India to become indentured workers at the end of slavery in the British empire. And so in Guyana, they became the largest ethnic group, uh, because Guyana was one of the most profitable sugar colonies at the time of the abolition. So she, they brought in a whole lot of, um, indentured workers. So they're like a little more than half of the population now. Um, so she's somebody who's, uh, very unique in the sense that, you know, the Indo-Guyanese were subjugated in Guyana because they, if they did not convert to Christianity, they couldn't go to school. Um, and so she was one of the rare people. Her dad was described himself as a communist atheist. <laughs> so, which was pretty rare uh, for his generation. Um, and so she was, she got some of the top schooling and she was one of the few women and definitely one of the few Indo-Guyanese um, to be kind of accepted into the art world in in Guyana, which was a very male-oriented, very Afro-Guyanese-oriented space. So she's just a fascinating person, but she's feisty as can be. And she just she's just as spicy um, as any of the other characters, but she just has a different, uh, you know, she has a different way of doing it. So her work is very romantic. It's very impressionistic. Um, very beautiful strokes. And so she was sort of mocked by a lot of her contemporaries as saying oh, she had, she, her work was bourgeois, you know, which as I said, in this socialist environment, that was like a real insult to say that you was bourgeois. Um, but she's basically painting the landscapes in Guyana, you know, and, and Guyana is 80% rainforest. So it's, it's one of the most beautiful uh, natural environments in the world. And so she's sort of bringing out that beauty, but also, um, dealing with a lot of issues of, uh, brings in, she plays with Hindu mythology and, um, you know, battles with the cosmos. So some of her paintings are, uh, sort of like just beautiful landscapes, but she often embeds some kind of seditious messages in there. So you might miss it if you look too quickly, but she'll have like a, a, a soldier with a gun, you know, in the garden <laughs> and, or there'll be a bomb that's planted or they'll, she will lampoon some major political figure, you know, in, in some of her paintings. So they're kind of like, and I, she didn't really allow me to say everything that all of the secret messages that were in her paintings, but because she's still, there's still a lot of fear, um, in Guyana about people, um, attacking you. And, um, so she, she did not allow me to, but a lot of her work is sort of like for the people in the know, it's like, it, it's a, a lot of inside jokes that are in her work. And that's very, uh, buried beneath the sort of beautiful, pleasing surface. And yeah, as a kind of counterpoint to, to her, you have, uh, right, Ruel Johnson, um, who is a much more sort of, um, politically, uh, I guess outwardly engaged figure. Um, 
can you um tell us a bit about him he's yeah. he's quite the character in the book yes he is he is wild and he's actually the first person i met in guyana when i started doing the if discussions he did he basically co-organized and co-hosted one of them that i did in guyana in 2011 and at that time he was active he was a cultural policy advisor to the opposition the alliance for change um which is a multiracial uh party that was interested in changing the government. Um, the, the Indian dominated government, when it finally did get free and fair elections had been in power for a couple of decades and had become quite corrupt. Um, and so he was sort of part of the opposition even back then. So 2011, he, I remember seeing him and he was at, you know, pretty active and they were not successful. Um, but when I went back again in 2015, he was just certain that this is, this is, they are going down, um, because the government had actually, uh, suspended parliament because they knew that they, their, their power was coming to an end. So, um, he is somebody who, you know, writes poetry. He's won the Guyana prize for literature. He was the youngest person at the time to win it in his early twenties. Then he won it again in 2011. Um, so he's, you know, one of the most decorated Guyana uh, writers, um, but he also is like a huge Facebook activist. And so where I started following on Facebook from 2011 and it just, the way that he went, he came for these people, it just was like, it was so guttural. Like he would just grab them by the neck, you know, and shake. And this is what he was doing on Facebook. And he also would write these letters, these, uh, very passionate letters to the editor and the press. So, Pretty much every week, he, you know, Ruel was starting something, starting some fight with somebody, um, whether it was online or in the in the press. And so he's just a very bombastic figure, uh, and had a lot of young people. He was advising a lot of the young people who were um, involved in the opposition. So, you know, so in, in addition to his just straight politics, like he really wanted this change to happen. Um, he also really dreamed of having a creative sector for Guyana, you know, a place where Guyana could be placed to shoot film, you know, a place where they have a thriving music community or, you know, having the, you know, the visual arts letters. And so he became, he was sort of, his apartment sort of became a hub for a lot of people who, young people who sort of believed in that dream of, uh, sort of a creative Guyana. Um, and there does seem to be sort of, um, within this book, um, and I think, you know, like, uh, in the world, um, a, a sort of gender divide between this, um, art and politics idea. Um, you know, uh, you quote, um, this Dr. Cambridge who says about, uh, Ruel Johnson that, uh, every generation produces a Ruel Johnson, a confident young man, a young virile mm -hmm. writer, um, mm -hmm. which, yeah, I mean, it's so obvious. It's like, yeah, every generation produces a man. Um, and when we, when we talk about, you know, who's allowed to really be outwardly political and become a sort of spokesperson or a leader, it's, it's almost always some dude. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, you picked up on that. I didn't even pick on that up on that when I was doing, but it's true. Young Viral, listen to that, that, yeah. that language. Yeah. It's always very gendered. Yeah, I think men definitely hog the stage. They hog the mic. They hog the stage in pretty much every arena, um, every public arena. So that's the arts, that's 
journalism, um, you know, broadcast journalism and publishing. Uh, that is, it, it's, I think there's a lot of ways that that space is policed. Um, and women are sort of pushed out. So it really takes a certain woman who has extraordinary amount of, um, I mean, you have to really be able to take a lot of abuse and to be able to take a lot of criticism to be able to stay in that arena. So even with Bernadette, I mean, she, you know, she talked about how these big debates that she would have with these men, um, these great men who were uh, creating a new Guyana, free Guyana. And, um, you know, with for her, I mean, she's a mother. She uh, most of the time she kept a job teaching. Um, and so she's trying to, I mean, I think she was trying to sort of navigate her space as best she could, but she, she definitely was in the minority. I mean, I don't think there's, I, I'm trying to think who you could compare her to, um, in Guyana. Um, she's very rare, you know, as far as, um, you know, women who have really taken the spotlight and, you know, I think it's, that it's a lot to think about. I mean, every, every arena, comedy, um, the arts, politics, you know, they're, they're always getting these arrows thrown at you, you know, when you dare to share your ideas. Yeah, I was reading, sorry, I was reading an interview with um, Helen Molesworth uh, today, who uh, was just fired as the head curator of MoCA. Um, and, and she had very recently given an interview where she said, um, you know, uh, there's only so much space um, within a museum and within a culture, there's only so much attention. So if you want diversity, you have to, you know, men aren't, can't get these spaces. You can't sort of just, um, can That's say, right. oh, we'll, we'll present some women to the side. Um, you have to take some of the men down to, um, put them in their place. And then, um, of course, you know, she was fired for undermining the museum, uh, which is, I don't know, this, this whole thing is hilarious. Yeah, it's so frustrating because it's like, so, I mean, I'm a mother and I have a son and I have a daughter and now these are things that I, like, I, gosh, I just know so much more now, <laughs> but I, I can see how it's socialized, like from when they're very small, they're very socialized, you know, you see what their different experiences are in the classroom, you know, and how they have to fight, like my daughter has to fight for her space. You know, she has to throw, she has to fight. She's fighting these arrows just even in the classroom. Right. And so it's, it, so it just feels like when you're socialized from when you basically come out the womb, you know, that you're supposed to be polite and you're supposed to, you know, uh, cross your legs and, you know, don't be too, um, don't be too outward with your opinions. You know, by the time you get to be uh, a professional, like it just feels net. Well, of course the man is going to lead us, mm -hmm. you know? And actually I was thinking about this even in terms of, um, the election here in the U S in 2016 and how many white women voted for Trump. And I think, you know, I think part of that picture also has to be that women haven't really voted that long. You know, I mean, we, we talk a lot about the way that, uh, people of color, especially African-Americans, you know, really haven't been free since until the civil rights movement. You know, we didn't really have the vote. We didn't have a lot of things. And so we're still sort of dealing with that legacy of oppression. Women, I don't know that we fully grappled with the legacy of oppression that women have had, you know, and the lack of um, just time of 
feeling like you're even worthy of voting, you know, like this is recent, this is in recent memory, you know, so there's a lot of work that women have to do, you know, our, our society period as a whole, men have to do the work, women have to do the work, um, and sort of re uh, understanding our relations with each other and our roles in a different way. Um, and so, you know, I think until we really do that, then we're going to have issues. I didn't get a chance to read about this, but I, I saw quickly the headlines about the MoCA curator being thrown out. But, you know, we're going to keep having those things. I think it's going to be real messy um, and sort of chaotic uh, with the Me Too movement where, you know, people, the men do have to get taken out and they got to they got to be humiliated sometimes, you know, in order just to get the message that like this is not OK. It never has been OK. And we have to do things differently. Um, yeah, I, with the with the voting thing, I think I think so much about um, what my mother told me once because she volunteers at the polls as a as a poll worker every every election, um, and she told me that um, couples will come in, married couples will come in, and men will go in to vote, and then women will stand there and talk to my mother and not vote and tell her that they're not voting because they didn't want to cancel out their husband's vote. What? I think about this all of the time. And I mean, this is rural Kansas that this is happening in, but I think it's actually kind of, um, I, I don't think it can just be sort of, um, centered in rural community or, or Christian communities. Like I, I do think that there's something about that, um, that we're still socialized in this way of like, you know, we, we want to prop up our husbands and we want to prop up men and, yeah, I, I think about it constantly. Well, and it's like, and it's, it's, and this is where I, black women have had some good experience, some good experiences <laughs> on this. Um, you know, where there's, there isn't a lot of pretense when you're, you, I mean, black women have been breadwinners, you know, since the, the, uh, the end of slavery, you know, and before. Um, and so we kind of have more, um, sort of experience. So I think that's why you're kind of finding some of that, like historically, you know, we, you, it's a very tough situation, but you are, you do feel empowered, um, at, to speak your vote. So you, you're seeing, I think you see that in like an Alabama, um, with, with the recent vote with the black women basically saving us mm -hmm. from this pedophile, uh, from, from joining the U S uh, census, uh, the Senate. But, um, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a, it's fake. It's not real. They're not leading us. They're not leading our households. You know, like we're, we're catching up to them, you know, in every way and, and educationally and educational attainment. And this, gen this, the generations that are coming behind, like they're going to have to reorder the way that we're, we're thinking about these things because it just doesn't actually fit anymore. The man can't stay and lead the house, even if he mostly wanted to. You know, like that's not how our economy works anymore. Men and women have to work. Right. So it's like we have to rethink the way that all of these things have gone. But it just it's it's really hard. It takes a long time working on a column about this um, because I'm, you know, in the ways that I've tried to, you know, very belatedly figure out like, well, how do we model equity, gender equity in the house? You know, how do I get my son to not to, to make sure that he knows how to cook and clean, uh, you know, as well, because if you just sort of let things go on their own, they go in the way that they've always gone. 
Um, so it's like you have to have like active intervention. Like we have to have a gender intervention and it has to start really early um, from in our households and, you know, definitely in the schools. And then in the meantime, when we get to, you know, our age and like we're grown and we're just not having that. So it, it might get a little bloody um, for, for those of us. Well, I hope it continues to get a little bloody um, for, uh, you know, for women who are, are, are in the arena right now. Yeah. And I think part of it is it's important not just to sort of socialize girls differently in order to sort of take up more space and be more aggressive, but to socialize boys differently so that they take up less space and are less aggressive. Yes. Um, it absolutely. has to be the same. Absolutely. Yes. Because they have... This is not a woman's problem, you know, it's an everyone's problem. So it's actually, it's funny when I was in Guyana, you know, uh, Ruel had a forum that he organized. So he's now the cultural policy advisor in the current government. And he had a group of women to young creatives on a panel. And, um, and he didn't, he wanted me to facilitate it. And I was like, no, I'm not facilitating it. Somebody else, somebody from Guyana needs to facilitate this. Um, and so we're sort of running out of time. And so he ended up doing it. He could not help himself. Yeah. <laughs> he just, he, he stood there at the podium. He hogged the mic. He talked way too long, you know, and it's just like, and I, it, you know, you talk to them afterwards, but I mean, he didn't want to, that's why he didn't want to, he didn't want to facilitate in the first place. Right. But he just can't, like, they just can't help themselves. There is a whole re-education that has to happen. Um, they have to be more self-aware um, and gosh, it, like it has to go to like every part of our society. Um, and that's why I really hope that with this Me Too stuff, that the backlash, the backlash isn't to, you know, you know, there'll be a backlash coming, but you know, I hope that we go just as far as we can and we just don't let up because there's so much work that has to be done around this. Yeah. And I think it's often, we often think about it as a problem when we, when we talk about it politically, um, we talk about it as a problem on, um, the right, um, conservative men and, and for traditional family values and all that kind of stuff. But it's obviously a problem on the left too. I was yeah. reading a, this profile with this, um, Pakistani feminist poet, um, Atia Dawood. Um, and she was asked if she would give any advice to sort of younger, um, Pakistani feminists, um, moving up in the movement. And she said, um, Never marry a poet or join a leftist group. Mm. Um, because it's all still dominated by men. It's all still, and, but you believe in the cause or you, you're in love. And so you sort of accidentally sublimate yourself and subjugate yourself, um, into, into this, um, this larger figure. But, you know, socialism in America is as exciting as it is to see it sort of grow and flourish. It's uh, every time I go to a meeting, it's uh, some fucking guy with a mustache. It's just it's the same fucking thing. <laughs> yep, same thing. I think that's what that's what Bernadette was trying to say. Same thing. <laughs> same thing. It, you know, nothing changes. Um, but where I depart with Bernadette is that, of course, things change. And if you we need artists to be, give us a vision for change, you know, we need that. That's, you have to start with a vision you know, for something that's different than the way things are. And I think that art can be that. I mean, I, I, I don't think that we have to do it on command, but I think we have to create a space for that and create a space for people to be able to share and not just with, with art, just speaking out, you know, we have to create a space where people are, 
willing to share their visions for the future and share and, you know, have a voice in, in where the society is going and that people, um, people, pe- people feel empowered to do that. Everyone, men, women, everybody, you know, the, the other thing that I think that, that to explain the gender divide in the art is this new, you know, so we, we both know Natalie Moore mm-hmm. um, from Chicago. So we always talk about this, this, you know, we just, if we could just have a wife, you know, if, if we could just have somebody, it's like that thanks for typing thing. I don't know if you saw that hashtag. That was so fantastic. Thanks for typing. Where this guy, he went through historically, he looked at all these old books and he saw the acknowledgments and he now and found all these acknowledgments. They're like, yes, thank you for my wife who uh, did the correlation analysis, conducted the interviews, typed up the manuscript, you know, like she did everything. <laughs> for this. And so it was this thanks for typing hashtag. And even in our generation, you know, and, and we, not naming names, but there are people in our generation who are propped up by women, you know, are propped up by partners, propped up by their mothers, propped up by, you know, and, and that's really nice thing to have. Um, if you're trying to be, to think deep thoughts, you know, and so as women, you, you, you get to think your deep thoughts, but then you, you got to do, you got to schedule the parent teacher conference and you got to uh, make sure the house is clean. You got to plan dinner. You got to, you know, like you have to do all these things that, you know, if you just had a wife, maybe you, we'd be liberated and we can j- simply think, think deep thoughts <laughs> and create. Right. And even if you, even if you're sort of, um, single and, and childless, there's still the thing of like, whoever you're, whoever you're dating is not going to type up your shit. You know, it's still the thing of like, you know, even, even if you can kind of like avoid the sort of, um, family space, there's, you're not getting the free assistance of, um, just any romantic partner who happens to come along. I I can attest to. You, but you do get the financial assistance, and that's a big thing too. So Tiara yeah. just had a wonderful interview in uh, something I saw where she talked about being on these panels with these women and their novelists, and they're like, "Yes, and yes, I, oh, I just write full time, you know." And so, mm-hmm. and she's just like, "Well, you're also married, and yeah. I'm not married, and therefore I teach." You know, but that doesn't make you a different category of writer because you have a man who can pay the bills, you know. Um, so that it's it's like it's you it, it's I don't know, not you can't win. But, man, it's it's not easy um, uh, to be a woman and to be a, a, in this space. Right. I'm, I was back a couple of years ago when that spinster book came out, the Kate Bollock book came out. Um and uh suddenly for a brief moment it was it was really fashionable to call yourself a spinster or whatever um i was talking to a, to a writer who's a married woman um and she was like you know i like to think of myself as a spinster i was like but you don't work like your husband supports you and you sit around and you write all day right. spinsters get shit done we have to like <laughs> sew shit and <laughs> anyway it made me really angry that's funny <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that's, I mean, the same thing with the I, Tanya movie, too. So I was in Chicago. I saw that with Nat, uh, Nat Moore. That was amazing. That was part of Tanya's issue. That's why she married that deadbeat who, who ordered the hit on Nancy Kerrigan. Was because <laughs> she's trying to avoid her mother, who's extremely abusive. And so she, you know, she has this boyfriend. And so, so she just moves in with him. But then she ends up really needing him because she cannot skate 
unless she's, you know, like she has to have somebody that pays the bill. So that's part of the reason why she's in this relationship in the first place, you know? So, you know, it's, it's really, I think, you know, being in these spaces, these, and they're, they are spaces of privilege, you know, to be able to, to write and share and, you know, think about ideas all the time. Um, they're all, all these, uh, you know, I think there's all these uh, added burdens that, that women, um, have been having to deal with, um, that I think it helps at least recognize it. I mean, Bernadette was, is married. So I think that's the thing to note too, you know, and her husband had pretty good jobs. So she, but she always worked as well, but you know, that's, that's something to note was that, you know, she's might've been one of the reasons why she also was able to be in that space is that she did have a spouse that was helping to support her and her sons. Um, so I wanted to pivot a little bit to, um, your section on, um, well, Ruel, uh, Johnson was talking about, um, the creative economy of Guyana. Um, you know, there's been a lot of sort of, um, backlash against the sort of, um, the Richard Florida idea of the, the creative class. Um, and even just sort of ideas about gentrification versus development and so on and so forth. Like, how do you, how do you make sure that, um, the people who are actually doing the work are the people who benefit from that work? Right. And it's not being exploited by sort of outside investors and developers and so on. Um, can you talk about that a little bit with Guyana? Um, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, known for being such a, um, uh, underdeveloped country. Um, but, um, what is, what's the sort of situation with that? Yeah. So, um, so Ruel's idea of a creative economy in Guyana, that, that was, it might've, might might as well have been science fiction, uh, because the, the, the obstacles to developing the space, like they need airport, they need roads, they need like real basic things that would make it very difficult. And then also who's going to buy the stuff you can create things, but who's going to buy it, you know, within your society, if, if there isn't any capital there. So, um, you know, the way I always think about, creative class is it's, it's really about class and you've got to have that. You got to have money. So usually it's not the creative people who sort of turn a place. It's the money. It's the capital that sort of that, uh, that turns the place. So, or the capital that follows them. Um, but this is where I think it's useful to have these poetic dreamer type of people, because, you know, that was the only thing that I could say, okay, I don't know that this is, the idea of a creative economy in Guyana, I just don't know. But then when they found this oil, so ExxonMobil, um, right immediately after the election, which ends this book, um, they announced that they found $200 billion worth of oil. That's billions with a B. And it's probably closer to double that, maybe more, um, that they found. And so right now we actually are seeing like there it's possible like a lot of things are possible that maybe people didn't think were possible before in Guyana so there is um you know there is a there is some potential I mean there's a lot of uh obstacles to overcome you know when it comes to actually getting the money and making sure that Exxon doesn't uh run away with everything um but there is I mean you could see that, you know, and I think there are very few people in the future in Guyana. And 
there are very few people who, uh, but some crazy poet that would have maybe even have that kind of vision. So that's why I say art does change things. So I don't, I don't think Bernadette is quite right about that. Art does change things. It can change things. Um, and you know, we just want to make sure that we don't squelch that spirit in people, um, when things are hard. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.